The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. How are we doing this morning? Y'all doing good? Hey, grab your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 6, will you? And uh, while you're doing that, I have a couple of announcements for you. Um, first of all, um, here, here at the church... We, we really, I have to confess, we have kind of an agenda with everyone that goes here. I don't know if you know that. Some of you are suspicious of that. Like, I knew it. I knew they had an agenda. We do. Other than just following Jesus in general, um, we really want everyone who's part of Heritage um, to be uh, in two different places. We, we want everyone to be in community, in gospel community. That's why we push and promote and have been really investing a lot in our huddle groups, our community groups over the last season, um, so that you're in small groups where you can live out the one another's of scripture and love one another, grow with one another and all that. And then the other thing we want everyone at Heritage to be doing is serving in some other capacity. Um, we believe that's biblical. We believe it's healthy. Um, what kind of family would we, would you be if like you're, no one pitched in, just no one pitched in, did anything. It just, it wouldn't be a, a good deal. So we really have that desire for everyone here. And so with that being said, I want to just point out to you guys this morning that we have lots of um, service opportunities for you here at Heritage right now and actually needs in those service areas. I know a lot of times you can come and everything's sort of already set up, especially if you're coming to second service because it's all kind of operating already after first service, uh, hopefully anyway. And, um, but actually, here, here's a little fun fact about Heritage. It takes 78 volunteers every Sunday to do church at Heritage, which surprised me that that was way higher than I even realized. But everything from children's ministry volunteers, setup crew, sound, security, all that different stuff, 78 people every week to do church here. Um, so I just want to encourage you, if you're not serving somewhere, man, jump in with us. And th- this is not me throwing guilt trip on anybody like, do your job. That's not what I mean. I'm inviting you to partner with us and like join us so we can get to know each other and serve together and, and just uh, worship the Lord in that way, serving together. And it's important. I mean, whether, whether you're, if you're, if you're like, well, set up crew, how important is that? Man, you are, you are putting together the environment for people to come in and hear the gospel, for people to come in who may need that word from scripture that day. Like you're creating that environment where that can take place. It's huge. Um, so I just want to encourage you in that. If you're not serving somewhere, stop by our Connect desk out there and uh, find out where you can uh, get involved and operate in use of the gifts that God has given you. Second thing is, is pastor's coffee. Today, right after service, we have pastor's coffee. Um, opportunity for, for um, me and the staff to get to know some of you and get to meet you guys. So if you are new or new-ish or whatever, um, we just want to invite you to just join us. It takes like 10 minutes right after service in the coffee shop right out here so we can introduce ourselves and uh, um, just get to know you a little bit. We'd love to see you right after service. Um, Other than that, if you guys would, grab your Bibles, Luke chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. Somebody will make sure that you get one. Uh, But I'm going to ask you to stand with me in honor of the Word of God. And we haven't kind of retold this in a long time. So if you're here wondering why do we do this and why do we say thanks be to God at the end and all those kind of weird things that we do, um, it, it's, it's not just kind of vain, weird uh, religious tradition in the sense that it, it's a reminder for us, not just mere tradition. So we're part of something that's been around for a really, really long time. And in the early church, before the days of printing presses and all those kinds of things, man, the reading of the Word of God was a really 
valuable, treasured time. Not everyone had Bibles. They didn't have apps. They didn't have all that kind of stuff. And so when the church would get together, they would open up the Bible to read it. People were so in awe of hearing not just a book being read, but hearing the word of God spoken to them. So people would stand in reverence of the word. The preacher, the elder, whoever it was, would read the text and then he would declare, this is the word of the Lord. And then they would respond, thanks be to God. Not just out of churchiness or any of that kind of stuff. It was genuine appreciation for the gift of the word of God. And so we do this here not just to be religious, but as a reminder and to kind of join, if you will, with our brothers and sisters from hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years um, to just be part of the church and in awe and in wonder of God's word. Amen? So with that being said, this morning we're in Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 37. The word of God says this. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, it will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of that that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we do thank you for the gift of your word. And now we just pray, Lord, that your word would have its way in us. Lord, we welcome conviction, even when it's uncomfortable, because I know that means, Lord, you're calling us to something better. But Lord, I also pray that that while your word may convict us to, to point out areas that you want to deal with, to grow us up to be more like you, to lead us to a better place, I do pray, Lord, against condemnation, because we know that's not from you. And Lord, if the enemy can't prevent us from hearing your word, then he'd love to bury us with it. And so I pray, God, this morning that your word, even in conviction, would be freeing to your people. That you would empower your people, that your spirit would move and change us to be more and more like you, and you would encourage us through the word. And we pray, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O my rock, my king my Redeemer. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. So Nathan came to David. David, you know, was king of Israel at the time. Maybe the most successful king Israel's ever had. Certainly um, Israel's hero king. And Nathan, the prophet, comes before David and he's like, David, I need to report something to you. There's something going on in your kingdom and you need to be aware of it. David's like, lay it on me, man. What's up? He says, listen, about two towns down, one of the cities down that way, there's two people that live down there. This one guy is like filthy rich, like super, super, super wealthy. You've probably had dinner with him even. He's like wealthy guy. The other guy, he's really poor. 
mean, he's like really poor. David, this guy really, he and his family, they don't even really have much to their name. The, the one thing of value to them anyway that they have is this one little lamb. And this lamb, it's weird, Dave, you're not going to understand this, living here in the palace and all this kind of stuff, but like, this is like their pet. And so literally, like, the man of the house would take this little lamb, as silly as it seems, Dave, but he would, like, hold it like it was a baby. And the thing would, like, fall asleep in his arms. He would feed it out of his hand. This lamb grew up with him. It's like, they're, it's like part of the family. It's their loved one. David's like, okay, but, but what happened? He said, well, the rich guy, he had some people coming in from out of town that he wanted to kind of wine and dine and, and show off. He wanted to make a really good meal. So he actually, David, he sent one of his servants over and they took the guy's lamb. They took that family's lamb. And they took it to their house. They slaughtered it, skinned it, prepped it, cooked it, and he fed their lamb to his friends. And David is incensed. What? Are you kidding me? Nope, not in my kingdom. We will not stand for this. The guy that did that, he deserves to die. And I want names. I want his name, I want his address, I'm going to deal with this right now because that guy deserves to die. Who would do such a thing? Nobody. Let's, give me the name, give me the name, give me the name, give me the name. Nathan's like, all right. His name's David. David, you're the man. It's not a lamb though, David. You didn't steal someone else's lamb, you took his wife. And you didn't slaughter someone else's lamb, you slaughtered the man. David, you're the one. You're the guilty one. It's a story we know pretty well, right? Um, it's a story that really pictures to a T what Jesus is going to teach about in this particular text this morning. And there's a tendency, if, you wanna, if you're going to fall asleep later, remember this part and you'll kind of have the whole sermon right here, okay? Um, and it's this. We have a tendency to confront the sins of others and ignore the sins of ourselves. We the church, we Christians, can have a tendency to be incensed when we see injustices done by other people looking over the injustices that we create. We can point rapidly. My third grade teacher, I remember this, she used to say, don't ever point and tattle at somebody because when you point at someone else, you've got three fingers pointing right back at you. But, and I thought it was dumb, but there's some truth to that that we can have this tendency to point out sins all over the place and ignore our own. And there, there, there's a lot of people, you know, Jesus says of the church, of Christians, that we are to be the light of the world, right? But to a lot of people, that means we've got this spiritual spotlight and we're just looking. Like that thing on the Lord of the Rings, it's always like looking around, right? There were this spiritual spotlight that we're just trying to find the faults of others and point out the misgivings and the failures of others. And, and this, guys, this is a foundational truth. You guys remember, um, it was the first service we had of the year, or was it New Year's Eve that we did? We were talking about the year to come. Do you guys remember talking about and praying to see new life birthed at Heritage? People that don't know Jesus coming to faith in Jesus here in this place. We talked about the messes, the whole hospital analogy. Remember talking about all that kind of stuff? Well, listen, this foundation here, this, this principle here today is foundational to us if we want to see that happen. Because if we mess this up, they're never coming here. They're never going to walk through the doors of this place and shouldn't. So this is a really, really big deal. Now, 
Verse 36 is where we stopped last week. I'll, I'll tell you in advance, this is, I told the first service it was a shorter sermon, and it actually wasn't, so I won't tell you that. But um, this, was, this text was actually supposed to be part of the sermon from last week, and we just didn't have time to tackle the whole thing. So we've kind of severed it, and we're focusing on this, and I think actually with good reason. This is important to kind of let sit and simmer a little bit on its own. But verse 36, from what we looked at last week, is kind of the summary statement of what Jesus is teaching. It's kind of the context to help us understand everything Jesus is teaching in this text. It's really, really important that we get this. Now remember, Jesus is doing what's referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. This is the most famous sermon ever given. So Jesus is teaching. He's preaching in front of all of these people, and his teaching is about the kingdom of God. And so he's trying to teach people, hey, I I want you to be part of a new economy. I want you to live according to the kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom that they lived as a part of then, that kind of the faith community, the religious world then, um, was kind of led and governed by the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes. These are men that were the, the religious leaders of the day. They were the top of the top. And though Jesus loves everyone, amen? He loves everyone, amen? He didn't like these guys. Or he, at least, maybe that's not fair to Jesus, he did not at all like the way that these men carried themselves and the way that they led others. It was a religious system based on works, and he's constantly calling these guys out because they would puff their chest about their religious accomplishments and look down their nose at everyone else and and was leading them away from the heart of God. It was leading them, instead of a, a type of faith that's built on reflecting the mercy and grace of God, it was all about themselves. And so Jesus is here teaching the Sermon on the Mount about the kingdom of God, and he's calling them to live in a different way. And so last week, that was a rough one, right? Love your enemies. Anybody nail that this week? That's tough, right? Love your enemies. That's so difficult. But we talked about love and forgiveness and all these things. But, but here's the key to it, which we probably should have leaned on even more last week. We definitely will this week. The key to understanding and, and, and it not coming off as like this incredible burden, but the key to understanding why Jesus is teaching what he is, is right there in verse 36. Be merciful, even as your father is merciful. And the part I want you to notice is not just the fact that the father's merciful, he is. The part I want you to notice is the fact that he calls him what? Your father. It's really important. The context of what he's teaching is, understand your father. That was incredibly revolutionary terms in that day, but this is the context. In fact, in verse 35, he says, love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. Now, if you remember last week, we talked about the fact that doesn't mean that if you give things away and you love your enemy, then you will become sons of the Most High. It's not like we earn our way to become sons of God. What that literally means is you will be seen as. In other words, as you live this way, people will see you living this way and realize that you are a son of the most high God because you are being merciful even as your father is merciful. And this is really, really important, this context of a father. Because that's what it's about. He's teaching about a family resemblance. 
And this is what happens even in the natural world, don't we? I mean, as you live long enough, don't you start to notice things? Like my kids right now, I I hear it all the time. Even over Christmas break, I was sending some photos of my kids and uh, from our Christmas service here and stuff like that, back to family back east. And my cousin, who I hadn't talked to in a long, long time, she was texting me and she was like, oh, those girls look just like you. I'm like, lucky girls, (laughs) you know? I mean, they kind of do. Um, They kind of do look like me. But that's it's not so much what I'm talking about, just like physical appearance. I'm talking about the things that maybe we do, the way we think, the way we process things, the way we act that you can sometimes realize I got that from dad. Good and bad, right? Because I'm not a very patient person. And so sometimes I can react in such a way that when I'm impatient with my kids, they become sort of the bearers of the brunt of that at times. You know what I mean? And then that'll happen, and I'll realize it sometimes. I'm like, oh, that's, that was my dad. And, and that was maybe one of the things about my dad that wrecked me the most. And he, really, I'm doing the same? Like, oh, couldn't I got something else from him? But that, but then there's good things too. There's good things too. Like just, just this week, I was cleaning out my uh, closet and I was going through, I've got a million hats. And so I was just trying to clean out some, you can only wear so many hats in a year, right? So I'm trying to get rid of some different hats. And I found this old Tar Heel, uh, North Carolina Tar Heel hat. You guys know God's favorite team, North Carolina Tar Heels. And, um, and I, I haven't worn this hat in forever. It's basically brand new. It looks just perfectly brand new. And so I was like, I'm not gonna throw that away. I'll give it to Bentley. So I took it and put it in my son's room. He was at school that day, so he didn't see it. Like two days later, he comes up to me. He's like, he's got the hat. He's like, dad, you left your hat in my room. I'm like, no, son, I gave you that hat. And he just lit up. And I'm like, ah, I like it. He wants a Tario hat like dad. He wants to be like dad. And that part of it, I'm like, yes, he's growing in godliness. That's amazing. <laughs> but you know, there's those parts of it that you just like. Well, that's what Jesus is doing here. The context of all this is he's calling us to be like dad, to be like the father, something that was unheard of in that day. So the question is then, okay, well then what does the father look like? Israel should have known this because the story is told and actually did happen. It's one they clung to quite tightly. Remember when Moses is up on the mountain and he makes a request of God. He says, God, show me your glory. Show me your glory. Now, that doesn't mean show me the bright glow or the, you know, that's, that's not what that means. It means like your essence. Show me who you are. I want to see you. And so God responds to him. In Exodus 33, Moses says, please show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. That's weird, kind of. God, I want to see you. God responds, I'm going to declare my name to you. I'm going to show you my goodness. And I'll be merciful to who I'm going to be merciful to. I'm going to show kindness and goodness, forgiveness to those that I will. That seems like a weird thrown-in sentence right there at the end. Like, what is, I'm going to be merciful to who I'll be merciful to? What does that have to do with who you are, God, and Moses wanting to see you? Well, the story plays out. God brings Moses up to the top of the mountain. 
God descends in a cloud. He, he, he can only reveal a portion of himself to Moses because God is so holy. And Moses, as great a guy as he was, was a very flawed, sinful man and would not even be able to exist in the presence of a holy God like that. And so, so God's like, I'm just going to kind of let you see the back. I'm just going to let you see like the, you know, like looking on the back cover of a book. You're going to get that part of it. I just, if I threw everything at you, you wouldn't be able to handle it, man. So this is what I'm going to do. And he hides him in the cleft of this rock for his own protection. And then the scriptures say this, verse 5 of Exodus 34, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, and here's, these are God's words now as he passes by, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by, by no means clear the guilty. He does this kind of declaration as he goes by. So track with me on this. Moses, show me your glory. I want to know who you are. I want to see who you are. Show me your glory. God's response to that, the way God showed him his glory is he declares his name and he declares, I mean, this is the character of God. And that's really what that means. Lord, I want to see you. I want to experience. I want to know you. Okay, here's what you need to know about me. The Lord, the Lord, a God. And now what's the, if somebody asks you, hey, tell me about you. Tell me who you are. What's the first thing that you would say about yourself? For a lot of people, it may be the most important thing. Maybe it would be um, they, you want them to understand where you're from, so maybe you'd start with where you're from, or maybe you'd start with your position at work, or whatever the case may be. If you're an athlete, you would say, I'm the starting forward for whatever, all this kind of stuff. But the first thing God says, he could have said, the Lord, the Lord, the God who created everything by word, the Lord, the Lord, the most powerful being Ever. The Lord, the Lord, beginning and end. He could have said so many different things. But he says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful, gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. Keeping love for thousands. And then he goes back to it, forgiving iniquity and transgression. Like one of the first things God wants Moses to understand. You want to see my glory? You want to know who I am? You want to understand my essence? Then know this. I am a merciful God. I'm a loving God. I'm a slow to anger God. I'm a forgiving God. So now, in the church world, we have this, this thing, we, this kind of Christianese word. It, it comes from Scripture, but I don't think we always fully understand or realize what it actually means. But we have this phrase called glorify God. What's the purpose of the church? Glorify God. What should we as Christians do? Glorify God. Let me ask you, but what does that mean? If I said, are you doing your purpose of the church? Are you glorifying God? What would you say back to say, here's how I'm glorifying God? Because I think that phrase has been kind of pigeonholed into worship, which it is an act of worship. But a lot of times we think of glorifying God as like, man, we're singing songs and we're lifting his name. We're glorifying God, which we are if we're singing songs about God's character and his nature. But more practically... And maybe outside the boundaries of just the 10.30 a.m. service on a Sunday. To glorify God. Well, if Moses says, show me your glory. And the glory God showed Moses was these attributes about his character. Then we would glorify God. How? By bringing these attributes to bear in the world around us. 
We glorify God by becoming a physical manifestation, a visible representation of the character of God. That's a real churchy way of saying it. Real easy way of saying it is we glorify God when we look like dad. As we grow in Christian maturity and as we grow in the character and nature, and think about it, we were created in the image of God, but when we sinned, that was fractured. But then when we become Christians, when we put on the righteousness of Christ, the Holy Spirit, the scripture tells us, is molding us from one degree of glory to another into the image of God. He's changing us back into what we were supposed to be all along. So we glorify God, not just by singing, but by representing and displaying the tangible attributes of God. And namely, first on his list is what? Mercy. He's a merciful God. Jesus' teachings even right here, he says, be merciful even as your Father is merciful. So we want to look like God. And our Father is known for his extravagant grace. So what does Jesus teach about this? Verse 37 is going to start putting some more on it. He says in verse 37, judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. It's, it's, it's a, a way of talking about the, the elaborate goodness of God, this overwhelming goodness of God. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So what does that mean? Again, I'm going to warn you, most of what we're going to walk through here, there doesn't need a lot of explanation. It kind of is what it is. It kind of says what it says. Um, but the problem is with this one, I think we should talk about a little bit because we've kind of taken that out of context and used it in some weird ways. Uh, judge not lest you be judged might be the most well-known verse in the Bible for non-believers in Jesus. They love this because they say it at us. You know that, right? Like if you point something out, aren't you a Christian? Doesn't your Bible say judge not lest you be judged? Like, oh, you know that one. You guys got that one like tattooed on your foreheads, right? Man, you know that one. Judge not lest you be judged. But it's so misused. So what does it mean? Let me tell you a couple things that it doesn't mean. Judge not does not mean, um, and it's just a practical one, but does not mean that Christians should have nothing to do with the legal system. This is a legal term that's being used. And judge not does not mean that you get out of jury duty. It doesn't. I, I, I would really love to hear someone try this. It'd be really interesting to see what they would say. But if you get called to jury duty, bring this Bible verse up and say, hey, listen, I'm a Christian and the Bible says that I judge not and I will not be judged. But if I do judge, it could really go bad for me. So this isn't good. So I got to go. Peace out. I'm out. And I would love to hear someone say, I totally got out of jury duty on that. That would be amazing. I don't think that's going to happen. No, the Bible actually presents government as uh, the entity by which it's a common grace to all the world that that helps restrain evil through those things. Uh, The judicial system, government, those are things given by God to help restrain to some degree evil. It is something the Bible promotes. So to say, then I don't have to be part of the legal system because that's not not true at all. Um, The second thing that it doesn't mean is that we are, Jesus is, uh, he's not calling for us to suspend critical thinking or judgment. It doesn't mean that Christians have to become spineless jellyfish that have no opinion on things anymore. He's not calling us to stop judging right for wrong or, or, or to be able to discern between those things. That wouldn't even make sense, right? Because discernment's one of the gifts of the Spirit. So he wouldn't go, hey, I have a gift for you, but you can't use it. 
Like, that wouldn't make any sense. And if you look through the rest of the teachings, like, Jesus is constantly calling us to judge different things, to see if our righteousness is better than the righteousness of the Pharisees, to see if a tree is a good tree or a bad tree based on the judging of the fruit. Like, he still calls us to those things. He doesn't call us to some place where we just look at things that are going on and don't have an opinion. There's no more right or wrong. And there are a lot of people that have adopted that translation. They would see things that are just insane things going on in the world and go, that seems so wrong, but I was just talking to someone this week and she said that she, she works at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival and now at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, if you are on staff and you introduce yourself to someone else there, you have to give them your name and your preferred pronouns. Seriously. So you have to go, uh, my name's Jeff, my preferred pronouns are he, him. And within that context, there's people in there that are just all over the place. One person is plural. My name's Steve. My preferred pronouns are they, their. What? What's wrong with you? Didn't you go to school? Like, that's like basic elementary English. It's math, frankly. It's like plural. How is, how is math suddenly subject to judgment? Like, math's supposed to be the one thing that's a clear yes or no, but not anymore. And so we can watch this kind of stuff and go, well... I mean, but you do you. I don't have an opinion on this. It's not right or wrong. It's your opinion. And so I'm just going to back out from this kind of stuff. And, and that actually goes to aid some of the ridiculousness that's in the world today. It's part of relativism is that what's right for you is not right for me or what's wrong for me is not necessarily wrong for them. And that there's no real objective truth and we can't have an opinion on the matter. That is not what Jesus is calling us to do at all. So then what does it mean? I love Alistair Begg had a definition of this, and he says this. Jesus is condemning a spirit of self-righteous, self-exalting, hypocritical, harsh judgmentalism. That's what he's talking about. Let me read that again. Jesus is condemning a spirit of self-righteous, self-exalting, hypocritical, harsh judgmentalism. He's condemning the kind of judgment that even in the text, as it says, judge not, you will not be judged. Condemn not, you will not be condemned. The kind of judgment that leads to condemnation. The kind of judgment that is us pointing fingers at things and pronouncing judgment on things, but at the same time, ignoring maybe things that are going on, or worse still, pointing out the sins and failures of other people as a method of making yourself look better and looking more righteous by pointing out the faults of someone else. This is what he's calling him to. And this is, John Stott puts it this way. This kind of judgmentalism puts the worst possible construction on other people's motives. In other words, there's no benefit of the doubt. There's no, I wonder what they were thinking. There's no considering the heart of it. Whatever the worst case scenario is, that's what it is. Number two, it delights to pour cold water on other people's schemes and dreams. Number three, it's ungenerous towards others when they make mistakes. It's the David syndrome. How dare he do that? That's terrible. That's wrong. The whole time he's got a girl in the back bedroom. That's the kind of judgmentalism that it's talking about here. And as you see in the context, as we go on and this kind of judgmental attitude completely violates the law of love that Christians are called to. And it's really representative of our old nature. If you think about it, not the new nature. Remember, Jesus is teaching us to live this new kingdom, this new identity. This kind of judgmentalism is more indicative of the old nature. So I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, how many of you, I, I don't even know, do they have chalkboards in school still? Do they? 
No, whiteboards now? Just iPads? Whatever it is. Kids used to, we had this board and we used chalk and we would write things on the board and that's all we had. Um, so now that you're with us, uh, remember when, when you were in school and the teacher had to like go to the office or go take a bad kid to the principal or whatever the case may be. And remember when she would like pick a kid in the class to be the class monitor? Remember that? And she'd give him the chalk and have him stand up at the front and say, if anyone talks or misbehaves or anything like that, he's going to write your name on the board. I was just, you know, I was never in my life chosen to be that kid for good reason. But, um, cause I'd have probably wrote everybody's name, but anyway, they would get him up there. And so this kid now has authority in this piece of chalk. And how does he wield it? Like a samurai warrior, he wields that thing. Huh? Now, have you ever seen a kid in that situation whose initial inclination was to go, hey, class, listen, I, I'm all about mercy. I'm all about love. I don't want to write anybody's name on there. Let's just all get along. Let's just be fine. And you guys are all different. No, they're just like ready, like trembling to write. Come on, I dare you writing names up there to scare you, then erasing them, and then, ah, you know, all that kind of stuff. That's, there's like this initial, like, oh, I want to bust you. And kids tattletale when they're young, like little kids. You don't have to teach your kid to tattle on the other. Have you noticed that? They do it with joy. <laughs> because that's that old nature that says, it wasn't me, it was them. You're going to think better of me because I didn't do the thing that they did. Can I please have extra dessert? That, that's, that's what this is. This is old nature stuff. But, but now for the Christian who's been indwelt with the Holy Spirit of God, which is there to mold you more and more into the, the very image of God, Jesus is calling you to live out a new nature now that it exemplifies who God is and even the very mercy that God has shown you. That, that is a picture of the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and slow to anger. But that's just not typically the way we roll. Now, I don't, I don't know about you guys. Luke 6 is turned out to be like a minefield for me personally. Anyone else in here? Like everything it seems like we talk about, I'm just like... Every time I take a step, it's just blowing me up. And maybe this more than anything else, because pastors are the worst at this. Really, the worst at this. Should be no surprise when you look at the religious leaders of that day. But pastors are the worst. First of all, a big temptation in pastoral ministry that I've wrestled with for many, many, many years is a temptation to read the Bible for you. So what I mean is, instead of just being able to read devotionally and say, Lord, speak to me, and even after praying that sometimes, Lord, speak to me, speak to me, be merciful, even as you're, oh, that'd be a good verse to use on Sunday. I better write that down because I need to use that in my sermon. And, and all of a sudden you're like reading the Bible and you're learning things, but in your mind, you're taking it all in because you're thinking about the next teaching. You're thinking about the next thing. Well, if I do that, if I'm not pausing somewhere along the way to actually let those words soak in me first, then that's what I'm doing. I'm, I'm a Pharisee now. I'm throwing burdens on other people and telling other people what to do and pointing out other people's faults and never standing before God, before God's word myself and letting it actually dissect my own heart. And then on top of that, pastors are just dirtbags when it comes to comparisons. Like we just look at other churches all the time and, and we're just, I can't... Did you see what they're doing? 
Have you heard of this ridiculous? I can't believe they do this. I can't believe they teach that. I can't believe, um, because we all think we got it figured out. I have good news for you, Heritage. Yes, Christianity has had debates and arguments and division for thousands of years. Yes, all of that. But lucky for you guys, you come here because we figured it all out. So we've got it all figured out. We're right and all this kind of stuff. And so then we'll look down our nose at the other ministries and go, I wouldn't do that here. Like we're the worst of it. Which is made worse when I read verse 39. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into the pit? A disciple is not above his teacher. It's bad news for you. But everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Now, here's the deal. Here's the real context of what he's actually trying to say right now, this idea of calling to a different kingdom compared to the other one. Here's how we know that, and he's not just talking uh, uh, just randomly. Uh, Because in here, his analogy is, can a blind man lead a blind man? And Jesus' most common name that he used when he was referring to the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, the guys that he did not like what they were doing, by far the most common name he would use when he was referring to those guys is blind. He would constantly call them blind. In fact, in Matthew 23, he actually calls them blind guides. He says to them, you guys, you're tithing on every little bit. You're being so meticulous with all this different stuff. You're so concerned with all these outward expressions of righteousness, but you have no mercy in your heart. Woe to you, Pharisees. Danger, horror that you would live like that and neglect mercy, which is an actual representative, representation of the heart of God. So, so he's saying to them, if you're following them, can they even really lead you? And you have to understand, the rabbis in those days, the religious leaders, so they would have disciples, just like Jesus had his disciples. And the rabbi, his job was to teach these disciples to do what he does. He would teach them his interpretation of scripture. He would teach them how he feels that type of ministry should be done. He would teach them how to teach like him, all of that kind of stuff. There was even an old phrase in some areas of Judaism where they would say, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. And what that meant is, may you be following your rabbi so closely that even the dust of his footsteps would would get on you. And here he says, can a blind man lead a blind man while they not both fall into a pit? By the way, pit, in case you don't know scripture too well, really bad place to end when you're reading the gospels. Pit's the kind of word that gets used with regards to hell, as a matter of fact. And and here's what Jesus is saying. Look, if you want to follow men... If you want a man's teach, if you want to be like that guy, best you're ever going to do is be like that guy. But church, I'm calling you to be like God. I'm calling you to be like the Father. I'm calling you to be like the Father. Not not led around by someone who is so blinded by his own pride and self-righteousness that he doesn't even see how far he really is from the heart of God. Don't follow that guy. That is not going to lead you anywhere good. And that's a, that's a word for leaders, by the way. Like, if we're going to lead somebody else, we better lead ourselves first. And it, it doesn't mean that we have to be perfect in order to be leaders. If that was the case, I would not work here. But it does mean that there has to be opportunity for the Lord to teach me 
before I have the opportunity to teach someone else. It means I have to understand my own weaknesses. I'm, I am not arrived far from it. And I need to be aware of those things, not putting on some, oh, look how perfect, which I know you guys don't get that from me at all, but just this whole like perfect holy man syndrome that's constantly putting burdens on the people. You need to do this and you need to do this and you need to fix this one. And Mike, I don't even want to start with you yet. I don't have time. And all the, like, that's not the heart of God. That's not what God has called us to do. And he's saying, don't follow that. Verse 41, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that's in your eye when you yourself do not see the log in your own? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. This can be tricky because it's easy for us at times to see things that seem so egregious. Like sins, we rank sins, you know what I mean? Like this one's worse than this one and all this kind of stuff. And so it's easy for us to go, especially in the church world, like, yeah, I mean, I, I struggle with pride and I struggle with forgetting the fact that the Bible talks about God hates pride the most. But that doesn't seem such a big deal, pride, occasional laziness. I'm Baptist, so a little bit of gluttony. But other than that... But it's not that, and you see these sometimes egregious, massive, ugh, kind of sins. And so you can go, well, that, this doesn't really apply there because that is a forest compared to the log in my mind, right? But, but I, I think Jesus is calling us to a humility about ourselves that says, even if, even if, we have to have the willingness to even make the speck that we think we have into the log to deal with that with that kind of severity, to consider ourselves first before we go to others. And you know, even the smallest things as they get closer to, you eye, to your eyes become even blinding. And so to realize that, man, it's so easy for me to look at the things I struggle with and go, yeah, but they're not that big a deal when in fact they can blind me and prevent me from not only following Jesus, but cause me to lead people into really bad places. And he's saying, don't do that. Someone who wants to glorify God wants to be like the Father, and they start with themselves first. And they're not building followers to themselves. Like, if our job is to make disciples, I'm not making a disciple of Jeff. I'm making a disciple of God. That's why Paul himself would say, follow me or imitate me as what? As I imitate Christ. Trying to manifest the tangible attributes of God to look more like Dad. And look, the only way that you can do this, the only way you can do this is if you have an understanding of the gospel and you're standing in the righteousness of Jesus. Because listen, if the Pharisees were right, if that like legalistic, religious type of, if, if that's right, you should point your finger at people. You at least need enough people below you on the ladder so that you're like, look, I'm at least in the upper half. I should be okay. Like, you want the comparison. If legalism's right, that's what you want. But that's not the gospel. The gospel says that I was created in the image of God. And I was created for relationship with God in a perfect setting. Adam and Eve, they were put into Eden. It wasn't finished, but it was without blemish. And they were called into partnership with God. They were going to build society. They were going to develop the garden. He was going to subdue it, work the ground, all of these things. He was going to be partner with God in growing the world. If you look at the Bible from beginning to end, it starts with a garden. It ends with a city. 
And so here's Adam, called into partnership with God, created in the image of God, but somewhere along the line, he and Eve decide they just want to be independent contractors. We want to do our own thing. We don't want to work for him anymore. We want our own cut. We want our own decisions. We want our own power. We want our own thing. And so we sinned against God. And in that rebellion, it was fractured. And even that picture of God, that image of God that we were created in was tainted. Think about it, guys. When they sin, they hide. God comes looking. And what's the first thing they do? They start pointing fingers. They start doing the finger pointing to deflect attention away from their own sins and owning their own stuff to point to other people. Oh, it was her. Oh, it was the snake. They're doing it right from the beginning. But God is a merciful God. Amen? And think about it. He could have just said, all right, guys, I'm giving you the Bible. In here, it describes what I'm like. It gives all the law. It gives all these teachings, all this kind of stuff. You know what to do. Here you go. Do it. And if you pull all that stuff off, awesome, you're back on the team. He could have totally done that. But he knew we had no shot. And so what does God do? Instead of sitting back and pointing and moving first to judgment, aren't you glad he didn't move first to judgment? We would be in trouble. He moved first to empathy, and sympathy, and mercy, and love. And he came himself and humbled himself. He gave of himself. He lived perfectly in the way that we never could so that he could earn the righteousness that we need. He goes to the cross where all the wrath of God towards sin, all the blame, all the punishment for everything that we have done was placed on the shoulders of Jesus Christ. He paid the price for us. He then rose again from the dead on the third day to prove who he was, but even more than that, to defeat sin, to defeat death. And he's ascended into heaven and he now says, listen, believe, repent of those sins, repent of that selfishness. For God's sakes, please repent of that self-righteousness and trust me. And the person that understands the gospel knows that it really doesn't make sense for us to sit around and be judgmental jerks anyway, because here's the truth of it, and I hate to, this, this might break some uh, uh, dreams or whatever, but here's the truth. You will never do anything in your life good enough to stand on on its own before God. Ever. The most righteous work you could possibly do the best track record you could possibly put together, it will be woefully inadequate to survive the judgment of God. What we stand on is the record of Jesus Christ. When we stand before God, we are not presenting our resume. We hand him his. And that, if, if that's the case, that's why Paul will write, who can boast? Who can look down their nose at someone else? How can we judge with the kind of Con condemnation that's talked about here. How can we be like those guys when we have been saved purely by love and grace? And if we've been saved by love and grace, then we need to be manifesting that same love and grace for the people around us. And Alistair Begg would go on in his commentary on this, and he said this, there's no greater indicator of actual Christian conversion then do they show mercy to others? Because if they don't, then they've not experienced it themselves. You go, man, it's heavy. It's heavy. No, it's not. As Jesus actually says, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. 
You go, well, it sounds heavy. No, because then he gives us the Holy Spirit. When we believe, the Spirit comes into us. And what does the Scripture say? It's the Spirit's job. It's the work of the Holy Spirit that changes us from one degree of glory to another. He convicts us, no doubt. Maybe some feel convicted even right now, but he's convicting us. It's like he's showing us the need before the Spirit moves us and guides us and empowers us to deal with it. So we welcome conviction because in the end, God is trying to raise his kids to look more and more like him. And that's what's going to draw unbelievers in the door. If we're, if we're the judgmental church that a lot of the world thinks we are, that's the analogy we've talked about the last few weeks where we'll make people clean themselves up before they actually come into the hospital for help. And who wants that? But we need to be merciful, loving people. Doesn't mean we don't have an opinion towards sin. Doesn't mean we just let things go. Jesus absolutely did not do that. He was dead serious about sin. Obviously, he died because of it. But he was also friends with sinners. He, he was an encouragement to them. And he saves them. That's what we're called to. If we want to be like dad, if we want to be like God, that's who Jesus is calling us to be. Amen, church? All right, will you stand? Let's pray together. Daniel 9 9 says, To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness for we have rebelled against him. It's the gospel right there in the book of Daniel. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. Lord, will you help us to grow there? May we be people known for mercy and forgiveness. Not turning a blind eye to sin, but inviting people to grace and forgiveness, extending forgiveness to those who need it. Lord, when one returns evil for good, that's devilish. When one returns good for good, that's human. But you return good for evil. Lord, you have loved us while we were yet sinners. You died for us. Now, Lord, I pray that your spirit would empower all of us in this room this morning and would change us more and more to that degree of glory. Help us, God, to grow in grace and mercy and forgiveness Help us to constantly be aware of the reality of what we've been forgiven and the reality of the righteousness that we do stand on. And Lord, may it eradicate our pride and our self-righteousness and all those things. May it empower us more and more to point to you. And may we be able to say with, with absolute truth, follow us as we follow Christ. So Lord, may you have your way in us, have your way in this church. I pray you would just encourage and empower everyone here and work these things out in the lives of all of us throughout this week. We give you all glory and honor in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. I love you guys. Have a great week. Hey, pastor's coffee in just a few minutes. Come say hi.